Well, good morning. It is really great to be here. Um, and as Steve said, my name is Jamie. So I'm uh, husband to Jan, dad to two increasingly teenage daughters. And more often than not, you'll find me nestling somewhere over in the corner there on a Sunday morning playing the bass. Or maybe you haven't, because bass players tend to have some kind of invisibility shroud, so you probably haven't actually seen me. But having said that, for the last nine months or so, I've not actually been around an awful lot because I've been travelling, so I've spent more time out of the country than I have in it. Which kind of leads to the question, do I not like being here, or what, what is it that I do for a living? Um, so I've had the privilege over the last 18 years or so of working, travelling, um, living in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Central Asia, um, trouble spots like Somalia and Afghanistan, um, travelling to places like Iraq, but also to the Holy Land, to Jerusalem, and places that we'll recognise from the Bible that we read. Um, and the reason I do that is that I'm a humanitarian worker, or a development worker, um, and my uh, work has been to work alongside and walk with um, organisations who serve people in difficult situations, people in trouble, people in crisis. And for the last few years, I've been able to com combine travelling to crazy places with living in Buckinghamshire, which has been a rather nice change. Um, so I get to live in Leafy Wendover uh, and travel regularly down the road as far as Amersham, which is a marvellous place to have as, a, as an office. Um, so I work for a small local Christian development charity called Embrace the Middle East, and we work with local Christian partners across Israel, Palestine, Egypt, uh, Lebanon, Syria and Iraq. Um, and the whole point of this organisation is to work with and walk with local Christians as they're serving people in need around them. Um, so for the next two and a half minutes, I want to kind of set you in context and show you some of the faces and some of the places that I get to go, uh, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. Um, it's been shot on a GoPro, so please hold on to your hats. It's a little bit bumpy, um, but uh, yeah, run VT, as they say.
That is a lot of faces and places, and I don't expect you to remember all of them. Um, but let me quickly unpack some of it so you can see where you've been. So you've just been to Gaza, uh, which is not an easy place to get into. You need permits from the Israeli government, but also from Hamas, who are uh, a, a very difficult organisation who run the administration there in Gaza. Um, you visited the Al-Akhli Hospital, which is a Christian hospital that serves people um, who would otherwise would not get health care. Um, people like Mona, who was a woman who didn't come to the hospital because she didn't have any money. She was met through an outreach service that brought her into the hospital with a stomach complaint. Um, and while she was sitting there waiting for her treatment, um, she was taught how to test for um, breast cancer, so give her sort of a self-examination. Um, she did that and found a lump. So within the space of 24 hours, she'd come into the hospital for the first time, um, but she'd also found breast cancer and was fed into a system very quickly and is now uh, fit and well. Um, Mona is somebody who is really important in her family. She is a, a wife. Um, she wasn't a mother, but her sister-in-law died and now she's looking after um, her sister-in-law's children. Um, you've been to the West Bank and Jericho. The, the Palestinian Bible Society run a, run a really fantastic after-school club for kids um, in Jericho, which is a really difficult town. You drive into Jericho and there's often burnt circles on the road, which is from tyres being burnt, and there are regularly pitched battles between Palestinian youth and the Israeli army. Um, if a young boy, a 12 or 13 year old, is found throwing a stone, it's very possible that he'll get arrested by the military and taken off to a military prison, which is a really difficult thing for a, a 14 year old boy. Clearly he shouldn't have thrown the stone, um, but a military prison is not the place for a young child. The Palestinian Bible Society try and find ways to engage these youth, um, keep them out of trouble, show them a bit of hope, uh, give them opportunities and possibilities for the future. They also run services for their mothers, so mums have got places to meet together. You've been to Beirut, to um, Borshamud, which is in the Armenian part of the city. These days it's full of Armenian residents, but also Syrians, Iraqis and other refugees. It's a very densely packed area. Um, a place called Beit el-Nur, which translated means House of Light, um, runs a really remarkable uh, little kids' club. Um, the kids' club has grown as the needs have grown, so in the morning it runs a school for Syrian girls who can't get into mainstream school. It runs extra classes for kids who've got learning disabilities. Um, it runs sessions for mums so they can think about how do I help bringing up my daughters in a healthy way and provide them with um, nutritional advice for healthy living. And there's an after-school club. It's really important because that's the kind of place where it's an inner-city urban area, um, and as in, the, as in this country, bad things happen often in urban areas. So it's a place where prostitution, where drugs, where crime are rife, and providing opportunities for kids to go somewhere safe is really, really important. It gives them hope and a possibility for the future. There's so much more I could tell you. There's many of the places you've just been, um, but I think that gives you a rough idea of the kind of places that we're talking about. Um, as one of my colleagues regularly tells me, Jamie, you know far too much. Um, so I'm going to stop here um, and we'll segue into just a couple of stories that kind of typify uh, the reality of life, but also link it into um, a story from the Bible. So the, the lands of the Bible were never really places that I had a desire to go. I know for some people it's really important to go to the places where Jesus walked, and it never really entered my head. I'm lucky enough to travel very widely. Um, I've seen many places and 
things that most of you won't get access to. So I've been very, very fortunate. But I had the privilege six, six years ago when I started working with Embrace to go to um, Israel and Palestine for the first time. Um, and it's there where I want to sort of uh, start to weave a story, really. On a warm September afternoon, um, I sat down under a tin roof just outside Bethlehem um, on a hillside with a Palestinian farmer, um, a guy who was growing olive trees, um, and we were looking at supporting a project with the East Jerusalem YMCA um, to grow olive trees and support these farmers. Um, that morning, I'd been to some schools, and the names of the schools hadn't really um, resonated with me at all. Um, so the farmer said to us, um, Jamie, where, where were you this morning? So I said, I was at Talitha Kumi, and he looked at me and smiled. He said, ah, you'll know that name. And I kind of looked very blankly at him. Um, at which point, a Palestinian farmer, in a place I least expected, started to give me a little Bible study and explaining the story of Jairus and his daughter and how Jesus intervened into that family situation. So I didn't really expect, when the day started, to be chastised for my lack of biblical recall on the side of a hill just outside Bethlehem. But there you go. Um, so let me take you through a little bit from Mark chapter 5, where the story of Jairus and his daughter um, is, is written down. So Jesus has just crossed the Sea of Galilee um, and a ruler of the, one of the synagogues came to see him and basically this, this guy is at the end of his, te his tether. His daughter is very sick. Um, Jairus is a very powerful man and he has opportunities for healthcare and all the support that society can give but nothing has worked and he is really concerned for his daughter. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can be made well. So Jesus says yes, and the crowd and Jesus follow Jairus back to his home. But while that was happening, message comes from the family to say, don't waste Jesus' time. The little girl has died. Why trouble the teacher any further? So at this point, you think the story could have ended. It's a sad story, but that's just life in those days, 2,000 years ago. But Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. So they went to the house and as is common in that part of the world, um, there is much wailing and mourning. People show their emotions very clearly on their heart on their sleeve. Um, and Jesus said to them, and called them short really, and said, why are you making a commotion? Why are you wailing? The child is not dead, but she is merely sleeping. Um, everybody laughed, as you would expect, um, but Jesus carried on. And in a very unshowy, uh, unperformance-like way, he walked in, I took the girl's little hand and said, Talitha Kumi, hence my link back to the story of the farmer. And immediately the little girl got up. Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise. Um, and everybody looked on with amazement. And I love the little bit at the end here. And Jesus told them to give her something to eat. The little girl is hungry. Um, judging by the 12-year-old in my house, I would say that's fine. Wow, what a story. Um, so it's one of those touching accounts where Jesus responds to an individual's need in a really personal way. He steps into somebody's life and touches them and changes things. Everything is different from here on for this family. A girl who would not have been there is there. She's healed, she is well. And the family have um, a new lease of life, or so to speak. Um, so Jesus has dealt with a seemingly impossible human situation, um, as he does so many times throughout the Gospels. Um, and it becomes an opportunity for him to demonstrate in a very quiet, clear, but deliberate way who he is. Um, that he is, a, 
He is the son of God, that he has power beyond what we can ask and imagine, and that he has a mastery over death. I think the wonder I find in this story is that there's a, a powerful man who had all of the, the world's possibilities at his disposal, um, still needed to reach out to Jesus and ask for his help. Um, and even when hope is, is lost, when things seem to have been dashed and we're told that the girl has died, Jesus tells, no, trust and believe. There is still a possibility here. Um, I can imagine Jesus looking into Jairus' eyes. I imagine, well, as a, as a father myself, I can just imagine Jesus' tender eyes looking into mine saying, it's all right, trust and believe, we'll work this out. Um, and focusing on Jairus as one person, speaking right into his heart and into his life. So I want to think about compassion, because that's what my day job is all about. Um, one of the defining features of Embrace, the organisation I work with, is that we work with local Christians. Sometimes that's churches, sometimes that's Christian-led charities, sometimes it's NGOs and other organisations, but always run by local Christians that are seeking to reach out and serve people in really difficult situations around them. Um, running practical projects and serving people where the needs are, very much like the, the storehouse and other ministries that we have here at Vineyard in Aylesbury. Um, it's all about showing God's love very practically. I could talk endlessly about all the different places I've been and the people I've met. I think already in the last nine months I've met 50 different organisations across six or seven countries, but you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to tell you too many stories. Um, Going back to the video that we saw earlier, and some of the faces in the clip were people who live in the Becker Valley, which is a, um, a beautiful, verdant place in the um, east of Lebanon, which is on the southwestern border of Syria. Um, if you like Lebanese wine, this is probably where they grow it. Um, they make some great goat's cheese if you can sneak it back into the country. Whether I'm supposed to say that on live stream, I'm not sure. Um, and let me talk about a particular family who I met back in February when I was there. Um, I'm going to call them Hassan and Noor, because we never really tell the names of the real individuals. Um, Hassan and Noor had been in Lebanon for about two and a half years when I met them. Um, they are people from Aleppo, so it's a place that you will have heard all about over the last six or seven years. It's a name that crops up regularly because it's right in the centre of the, the crisis and war that's been happening in Syria. They came from a village just outside. They're a farming family. Um, ISIS attacked the village um, and they felt they had to flee for their lives. So they fled over two nights. It wasn't safe to travel during the day. So they walked with their children, I'll tell you how many in a minute, um, across into Lebanon. I don't know what time of year that was, but if it was winter, um, the mountain passes they would have to cross would be very treacherous and extremely cold. And if it was summer, it would just be very hot. Um, so when they first arrived, their neighbours helped them. They found a makeshift place to build camp. They made their own tent, uh, and the people around helped them. But the people around them only had so much, so the help didn't go very far. Um, after three months, they hadn't had any assistance from anybody else, but somebody gave them a phone number for a local church, a place not dissimilar to us. Um, and a guy called Marzen, who has become a friend of mine, um, went to visit them. Um, he realised that there was a sick child in the family, so he put them up the top of the list, and they started receiving help. So the first thing they got was a mattress. Um, a mattress sounds very simple, but if you think about it, if you live in a sort of four by six or 12 by six room with nothing else in it, your mattress becomes the center of your life. It is your sofa, it's your bed, 
you probably share it. It's the place where the kids do their homework. It's where you eat your meals. And this is something which is probably $18 or $20 uh, mass-produced in China. So a very simple thing. So they got three of those. Um, they've now got one for each person, so that's quite exciting. Um, they're quite a large family. So there's two grown girls who I've not met, 14 and 17. Um, six sons, one who is older, and then uh, five ranging between two and ten. So this is a quite a significant size of family living in a very small, uh, small place. So when I think that my house is full, I really have no room to complain. Um, they've been provided by the organisation that I get to work with, uh, with a stove, with heating for the winter. They get food every six or eight weeks, and they gain support just to help them get by. And I said to them, do you see yourselves going home? And they very simply said, we would love to, we want to go back, we know how things work, it's where we're from. But at the moment, it's just too difficult. Now at the time, the front line back in February was around where their house was. Now it may have moved since then, but even though the war has shifted to elsewhere in Syria, Idlib is the place that's often mentioned on the news, um, the impediments to stop people going home are still very present. If you left and you haven't done your military service, you will be arrested when you go back. If your son has turned the age where he should be doing military service, he will be brought into military service straight away. And in all likelihood, if you're somebody who hasn't done their service, you'll be sent to the front line. So the chances of getting caught in the conflict and the violence are very, very present. Um, and that's even if your house is still there, because it may have been destroyed by the violence and carnage that's happened. So it's not dead straightforward. Um, something I skirted over, which is a really important detail, um, are the two elder daughters. And when I say elder, I'm talking 14 and 17. So not much older than the two daughters I have, who I can see hiding down there in the darkness. Um, I'm probably similar age to many of your children. Um, these two girls um, weren't there because they'd been married off. Um, the 17-year-old, uh, to quote Hassan, was very beautiful, so the only way we could protect her safely from ISIS was to marry her young. So at the age of 15, this young girl was married to a, a, another man. We don't know how old he was, but in all likelihood it would have been at, at least 20, but could have been anything up to 45. So she is now a, a married woman, and we heard that she's a mother. Um, similarly, the 14-year-old, she has also been married off, um, for similar reasons, to protect her, because that's how the family see it. Um, she is living elsewhere in Lebanon and never has any direct contact with the family. That's really hard. Um, without, no doubt it's the best of intentions. They want to see their children looked after, see their girls supported and have a good future. But that means they get married young, and in reality that means they'll have children very young. They probably haven't finished their education. Um, and when it comes to the pecking order of life at home, the youngest wife is the one who does most of the work. So you're expected to um, have lots of children, you're expected to clean the house, and you're the kind of woman who is moulded and shaped by your mother-in-law, who will use you as a little bit of a, of a servant, which is really, really hard. Um, It was really encouraging to me when I heard this family speak, and this wasn't a setup at all, they were just being very honest. They said to us, the church are the only people who've helped us. So this is a family from rural Aleppo, they're a Sunni Muslim family, they've not got any connections with the church, and they just felt loved and served and supported by a group of local Christians, not unlike us, but Christians who happen to live um, in a place where there are over a million refugees, um, where the population is only about four million, so you're talking a a huge number of the population is now refugees inside Lebanon. 
Um, the church itself is an amazing story. The, the pastor, he always makes me smile. His name is Jihad, um, which is not the name you would expect for a pastor. Um, he had a real vision um, a number of years ago to set up a church. He felt called to do it. So he started a church very much like we did, and it started in an apartment. Today, it's a three-story building. They built a nice parking garage, as they call it, underneath the church. And then the Syrian crisis happened, so the parking garage was converted into a school. So they're able to serve 200 children, actually 400, two shifts twice a day, um, to give them some education and a little bit of hope and a, uh, for the future. Um, Jihad, as well, doesn't come from a professional church background. He's a computer engineer, so he started as the local IT guy. Um, and now he travels the world talking about what he does and serving people in the most amazing way. These stories only scratch the surface of what local Christians um, are up to in the Middle East, to the people I get to see on a regular basis. It's a real privilege. Um, one of my colleagues says, Jamie is always happiest when he's not in the office. And that's simply because I get to meet amazing people doing remarkable things, but just ordinary people just like you and me. Um, people who are reaching out with a heart of compassion to serve people in Jesus' name, really trying to make a difference. So skipping back to um, the story of Jairus and his daughter and Jesus and how he, he responded, Jairus is asked to suspend his disbelief and keep trusting in the same Jesus he hoped, he trusted, he dreamt, could heal his daughter of her sickness. I don't expect he had inclin any inclination that the sickness was going to get worse that day, and I don't even know if he knew that things were going to get better, um, but he had a little bit of faith, he trusted and he believed. Um, I can only imagine the mix of emotions as all this was happening. Jesus reached out and touched into this man's life and changed his world. Um, in a small way, the people that I work with are able to stretch out their hands and demonstrate Jesus' compassion, focusing on individuals, meeting out individuals, seeing them as individuals, listening to them, hearing their stories and serving them one-on-one -on -one in a way that's going to help them. Um, as I said, Hassan and Noor felt really served by the church. Mazen, the guy who um, took me to meet them, clearly knew them very well. He was welcome in their home. He's somebody who the family trusted um, and was serving them in a, in a really sacrificial way. I think a recurring theme in my own life, something that regularly comes up, is the value of simply trusting and believing. Um, it's easy to say that when times are easy, um, but more, it's much more important to trust and believe when times are a bit more difficult. Um, I long for a consistency of trust and belief in my own life that allows me to become more like Jesus. Um, only through trusting him and listening and reading and learning will I become more like him and be able to be his uh, hands and feet in the world around me. Um, so my challenge for each of us, um, whether we are currently in the position of being able to give and whether we've got time or money or prayer, um, and we can be the person helping, or whether we, we're somebody who needs to receive at the moment because it's all just a bit too much. The mountain's too high. The, the challenges just seem completely insurmountable. Um, my encouragement to you is, will you trust and believe in this Jesus? Jesus who raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. Jesus who inspires the ministries that we run here at this church. Jesus who inspires the many hundreds of local believers that I get to work with in the Middle East. Middle East. I'd also encourage you to pray for our brothers and sisters out there. It's not easy. Being a church that served Syrian refugees in the Becca Valley in Lebanon six years ago was really countercultural. 
Lebanon and Syria had been at war for many years. There was a lot of enmity between those two countries. And yet this church stood up in a predominantly Christian area, actually, and challenged the mayor and the norm and the town and basically said, we are going to serve these people. And they, they stood by what they felt was the right thing to do. Um, and God has blessed them for it. So, but I would encourage you to pray for them so we can stand with our brothers and sisters. And if you want to have more information to pray, I can very happily help you out with that. Come and see me afterwards. But I guess I just want to leave you with my challenge, um, which is, is as much for me today as I, it's always the case when you write something like this, you end up being challenged probably more than the people you're speaking to. Um, so whether you're in a position to serve, whether you're in a position where you really need to receive, are you willing to trust and believe in Jesus because his hand is stretched out to you? All we have to do is take it. Um, yeah, will you let Jesus work in the situation that you are in right here, right now, today? Thanks.